Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Now that all 19 defendants, including the former president, have surrendered to election-related charges in Georgia, what's next? And the last defendant to surrender today was an ordained minister. We spoke to his lawyer about the case. The White House is defending President Biden's response to the Maui wildfire. And county officials now releasing the names of hundreds of those who are still missing. A Marine fighter jet crashes at a military base in California, killing the pilot on board. The cause remains unclear. And many people are blaming Russian President Putin for the mysterious plane crash that killed the Wagner Group leader. Now the Kremlin is speaking out. Time's up for the 19 defendants in the Georgia election case to surrender. All of them have with the last few this morning. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on what's next in the case for the former president and others. The last few surrenders did happen this morning, including former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. Now, this Georgia case stretches across 19 people who were indicted. There's a total of 41 charges, 13 of which are directed at the former president, who is now wasting no time in trying to make campaign dollars off that mugshot that was taken last evening. In his first comeback on the platform X, formerly known as Twitter, he posted the mugshot himself, and now he's selling merchandise with that photo on it. So it will definitely be interesting to see how both sides of the political aisle are using that photo as we approach the 2024 presidential election. After leaving this jail at around 8 p.m. yesterday evening, the former president did stop to speak to reporters briefly before he boarded his airplane, and he said this to the reporters that were there and also in a message to America about this fourth indictment against him. Take a look. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to, otherwise you're going to have very dishonest elections. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference. As for what's next in this case, while well, all of the co-defendants will have to be arraigned in the court here in Georgia, then they'll have a trial date. Now, so far, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, he does have a hearing in federal court on this coming Monday regarding his request to move his case to federal court. The former DOJ official, Jeffrey Clark, did try to uh, take the same route, but the former president, interestingly enough, have, has not tried to file to move his case to federal court, which he could on the grounds that he was an acting official at the time that these actions took place. But Trump now is trying to separate himself from those other co-defendants with regards to the trial date. So the judge in this case has already set a November 4th trial date for one of the co-defendants who requested a speedy trial. But Trump's lawyers promptly responded, saying that the former president does not want to be tied to any of these co-defendants who request such a speedy trial. Now, as for the arraignment that the district attorney has proposed for the week of September 5th, while well, the judge ruled that video and audio 
audio will be allowed in those arraignments, which the former president will have to be present for. So this is something very interesting and different from the past three arraignments. Reporting from Atlanta, Georgia, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And the last co-defendant to surrender in the Georgia RICO case almost didn't make bail. His lawyer explains why. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards spoke to the attorney about the charges against his client. Reverend Stephen Lee, an ordained minister from Illinois, was the last of 19 defendants to surrender earlier today in the Georgia RICO case. Lee's bail was set at $75,000, but as of this morning, he wasn't sure he would be going back to Illinois tonight. Um, Reverend Lee does not have any uh, significant assets. He doesn't even own his home. His attorney, David Shostokas, said Lee only had $4,000 of the $7,500 he needed to make bond. But then a miracle happened. And I did a podcast with Silk of Diamond and Silk. And I, we explained the whole circumstances to her, what was going on. She said, no, we need him in church on Sunday. And we, he needs to be back and preaching in the church on Sunday. I will personally make up the difference, what's needed to bind him out. Lee has been accused of intimidating an election worker. His attorney said Lee never met President Trump. He didn't attach his name to the president. Uh, Fannie Willis attached his name to the in an earlier interview with Sestokas, we talked about the charges against Lee. There are four counts uh, against him in the 41-count uh, indictment. Uh, two, of the, uh, two of the counts uh, indicate that he knocked on the door of a neighbor of Ruby Freeman, and then he knocked on Ruby Freeman's door. And somehow or other, these two, uh, these two door visits were uh, actions in furtherance of a uh, criminal enterprise to overturn the election. And then, uh, then they also uh, there's also two other counts involving Reverend Lee, and uh, they say that uh, he was on uh, two different phone calls, and as a result of those two different phone calls, he was uh, involved in some sort of conspiracy to uh, solicit a false testimony. By, uh, by an election worker and by a witness. According to the indictment, it says that he traveled to an election worker's home and spoke to her neighbor, purporting to offer help to the election worker, but intending to influence her testimony at an official proceeding. Now, is, is intent an element of a crime under RICO? It's an intent. Uh, intent is always uh, is always an element of a crime. You know, every criminal act has uh, every criminal statute has a uh, has an intent element to it. You can't uh, you can't basically you can't commit a crime by accident. Now, what would the prosecutor have to prove in order to show someone's intent? It's very seldom that somebody says, "Yo, I, I really uh, intended to uh, I intended to actually murder the guy." You know. They don't. You, you, it's very seldom that you have such a uh, such a statement, but that's where uh, some of the uh, some of the other things that people see in uh, in TV shows when you hear them say means, motive, and opportunity. Those kinds of things are circumstantial evidence indicating intent. And he did he travel, or he allegedly traveled from Illinois to Georgia to knock on the election worker Ruby Freeman's door for. Um, them to um, them to uh, say that the um, intention of the travel was to knock on the door. That's uh, that's something they're going to have to prove. So now, if the prosecutors are successful in convicting former President Trump and other defendants, what will this mean for our future elections? It will mean that nobody can contest an election. It will mean that nobody. Uh, essentially, it will mean 
that whomever is in charge of counting the votes can say, sit down and shut up. This is my result. Uh, it will mean that we don't have elections for all practical purposes because you cannot contest them. It will mean we won't have lawyers. They, uh, they've um, indicted uh, Mr. Eastman for giving legal advice. It will mean that we will not have the right to uh, petition the government for redress of grievances because part of the indictment has to do with uh, lobbying state legislatures and providing them information about their constitutional authority under the United States Constitution. It will mean that, uh, the, uh, that a Jehovah's Witness or a member of the Latter-day Saints can't come to your door and uh, offer, uh, offer their thoughts and pastoral services to you. Uh, that's what it will mean. It will mean the destruction of um, organized society. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Eileen, for having us. Maui officials have released a list of names of those who are still missing after the deadly wildfire. And the White House is defending Biden's no-comment reaction, saying he didn't hear the question. NTD Sam Wong has the details. More than two weeks after the deadliest inferno in the U.S. in a century, President Biden is still taking heat for his initial reaction. While enjoying a bike ride during his vacation, he gave an early response, or a lack thereof, to the Maui wildfire. Mr. President, are you going to take questions on Maui? Can you come talk about Maui? Can you come talk about Maui, Mr. President? On a separate occasion, one reporter asked a similar question, to which the president answered, quote, no comment. A White House spokeswoman yesterday defended President Biden's response, saying that he just didn't hear the question. She added that Biden had already spoken to the nation about Maui at that time. Earlier this week, the president, along with the First Lady, visited Hawaii. Upon getting a close-up look of the wreckage in Lahaina, he vowed to do all it takes to help rebuild and recover. Meanwhile, a search and rescue continues. Maui County has released the name of nearly 400 people who are still missing. The list was put together by the FBI in hopes that some of the missing may be discovered among survivors. As of Thursday afternoon, an additional 1,700 people who went missing were found safe and sound, and at least 115 people are now confirmed dead. The island's largest electric firm is facing a lawsuit for Maui. The county accused the company of negligence, suggesting that the whole catastrophe could have been avoided if they shut the power off preemptively. Sam Wong, NTD News. U.S. fighter jets were scrambled to confront a civilian aircraft near Lake Tahoe today. It was detected violating restricted airspace near the area where President Biden is vacationing. The civilian aircraft flew into the temporary flight restriction area this morning. The airspace is restricted while Biden and his family are on a nine-day vacation, which started on Tuesday. Two F-16 fighter jets from the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, were scrambled to escort the civilian aircraft out of the area. The White House said the situation was resolved without incident and with no impact to the president. And another incident involving a fighter jet, the U.S. Marine Corps confirms it has found the body of a pilot whose F.A. 18 Hornet crashed last night. It occurred at Marine Corps Air Station at Miramar in Southern California. The aircraft was part of Marine All-Weather Fighter Attack Squadron 224. No one else was on board. What caused the crash remains unclear. The identity of the pilot has not yet been released. Turning now to Russia. The mysterious plane crash of the Wagner Group leader sounds like something from a movie. NTD's Jason Perry takes a closer look at how another critic of President Putin died an early death. 
People laid flowers at a memorial in St. Petersburg, Russia, to pay tribute. It's my duty to honor the memory of my compatriot, hero of Russia, Yevgeny Vitrovich Prigozhin. I consider him to be a worthy person, a person who contributed a lot to the image of Russia. But does Russian President Vladimir Putin feel the same way? People all around the world are speculating that Putin was behind the reported death of Prigozhin. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov addressed these accusations on Friday. Of course, in the West, those speculations are put out under a certain angle, and all of it is a complete lie. And of course, once some kind of official conclusions are ready to be released, they will be released. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko also shared his thoughts on whether he thought Putin was behind Prigozhin's death. But he first offered some insight into what was going through Prigozhin's mind when he marched on Moscow. Lukashenko said he warned Prigozhin that he would die if he continued the rebellion against the Russian leadership. And he said Prigozhin replied by saying, to hell with it, I will die, I will die like a hero. But as far as Putin's purported involvement in Prigozhin's death, Lukashenko said this. Sure. I cannot imagine that Putin did this, that Putin is to blame. Too rough, unprofessional work for that matter. So did Ukraine have something to do with it? Here's Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Thursday. We have nothing to do with this situation, that's for sure. But I think everyone realizes who has. And German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock gave her take. We know this pattern from Russia, Putin's Russia. Deaths and suspicious suicides, falls from windows which all end up remaining unsolved. Why do so many people think Putin is behind Prigozhin's death? Some may know about Putin's most prominent opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned with a nerve agent in Siberia in 2020. He survived and is currently serving about 20 years in prison. Others may have heard of another Putin critic, Alexander Litvinenko. He died in London after drinking green tea laced with a radioactive substance. And a Russian opposition activist, Vladimir Karamurza, was poisoned twice. He fell into a coma both times, but ultimately survived. Although it hasn't been proven that Putin was behind these events, these are just a few examples of Putin's critics dying early deaths. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, bad news for borrowers. The Fed chair today warning that inflation is still too high and signaling the next move on rate hikes. What he says and what to expect. It's estimated the U.S. Treasury will borrow more than a trillion dollars in debt this quarter. The national debt is nearing $33 trillion. And after-school Satan clubs are creating controversy on some school, public school campuses. Community leaders are now calling them an overt attack on Christians. Federal Reserve hinting at more rate hikes. It says inflation is still too high. That says the economy factors into the 2024 presidential race. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. 
And borrowing might get even more expensive as inflation remains too high. That's according to Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell, who says the central bank might raise interest rates even further. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate. Speaking Friday at the annual Jackson Hole Summit for Central Bankers, Powell says that the central bank is watching for signs that the U.S. economy might not be cooling as expected. He asked that while the Fed will proceed carefully, it does intend to continue its restrictive monetary policy. Until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. Both June and July saw an ease in the pace of price increases. But Powell says that's not enough for them to have confidence that it's going to keep going in that direction. But President Biden has been touting the recent inflation data. It's now down to 3.2 percent, the lowest among. And it's going to go lower. The Federal Reserve is meeting next in September, and that's when we'll find out whether or not the Fed will once again raise interest rates, which currently stand at the highest level in over two decades. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. More than a trillion dollars. That's how much the U.S. expects to borrow for the current quarter. NTD Business's Don Ma has more on the Department of the Treasury's announcement. And here to talk to me is Jarek Giorgino, NTD uh, contributor and risk consultant in the greater LA area. So um, the U.S. Treasury is expecting to borrow more than a trillion dollars of debt in the current quarter. I mean, to me, this is just a huge amount of debt in such a short time. Um, I think a, dis a discussion about debt can be very nuanced and we'll go into more detail later. But first, let me just get, get you um, what you think about this. Are you concerned about, uh, about what's happening? I'm very concerned, Dodd. Our society as a whole did not necessarily have a great example set for them in terms of tone at the top by our federal government. And when it comes to our federal government and its reckless spending policy, the scary part, though, is that the federal government has a printing press. Your average American can't print more money at home and cover their losses. Uh, the U.S. government can. And it does. And it also issues more and more treasury bonds, takes on more and more debt with the public, and sometimes with other countries and at times with our adversaries. It's very concerning. So I want to pose this uh, point. You know, if I'm being fair, um, we, we're spending a lot, uh, but there, there's arguments that fiscal spending and uh, injection of liquidity into the economy could actually keeping the recession that we've been talking about since last year could be keeping the recession at bay. Okay, so <clears throat> that puts inflation completely off to the side and at all costs prioritizes preventing recessions and so forth, printing more money issuing more debt, injecting more into the money supply. Our country has shouldered itself with an unfathomable amount of debt that may not sit on the shoulders of current generations, but will sit on the shoulders of generations yet born. How do we fix this? Um, you know, what are the solutions? Has, has the ship sailed? Um, <laughs> I think the ship might have sailed, but as a country, we can't think that way. We're Americans. We problem solve. That's what we do. Um, but I don't think the problem solves itself. Uh, we have to solve it. And the only way we can do that is through honest, imprudent discussions about where our money is being spent. It's an issue. 
that I think Americans per polling from Pew Research and AP and others are starting to take more seriously and care about. 57% of Americans I saw in a poll care about the national debt as a serious issue, but that's not reflected in the agenda of our lawmakers. All right, very comprehensive discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Derek. I appreciate it as always, Don. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to next time. Next, after-school Satan clubs, which coincide with Christian gatherings on school campuses. Christian leaders discuss the controversy. NTD's David Lamb reports. This is something that public schools are finding themselves addressing all across the nation. There's a lot of questions that people of faith have regarding this. Christian leaders and a nonprofit law firm, Pacific Justice Institute, took it upon themselves to talk about the after-school Satan clubs, which attorney Brad Dacus says targets youth of Christian faith. According to the Satanic Temple website, the after-school Satan club does not believe in introducing religion into public schools and will open a club if other religious groups are operating on campus. The club has been known to open where the Christian Good News Club holds events. The students who launched this club actually told our students there that they were launching this just to get back at the Christian. If, uh, if they really wanted to just you know, promote open-mindedness, open-mindedness, then they, they could, should call it the open-mindedness, open-minded club. Um, the uh, whatever, you know, but the fact they call it the Satan club is a slap in the face. It's, it's an overt attack on its face of hate and demise towards Christians specifically. In 2022, an after-school Satan club was established in Kern County, California. The school district previously said, as a public school, the new club had the right to be there. To the extent that you have non-curricular clubs meeting at a school, a high school, during non-instructional hours, they have the federal right to be there. That, that, is, that is the fact of the matter. Uh, presumably, you know, as long as they're not engaging in illegal activity. They don't believe in Satan. But why do they call them Satan clubs? Because the goal is to generate controversy that will shut down all after-school clubs. To learn more about local clubs, speakers say some concerned parents may want to obtain a club roster or notes from meetings, but most clubs may not have those available. PGI said one action school boards can take is to give parents notifications of which clubs their child is a member of. And let's reach out and love to these kids. At the same time, of course, as I've said over and over again, respecting the rights of others uh, who may not respect your rights, uh, don't fall into that. Be tolerant and respectful of the rights of others who see things differently. NTD reached out to the Satanic Temple for further comment. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And the motive is uncovered for the shooter at a cherished community bar in California Wednesday night. A former policeman took three lives. NTD's Christina Corona has the latest. The Orange County Police Department identified the gunman as John Snowling, a former Ventura Police Department sergeant. Upon his arrival to Cook's Corner Bar, Snowling had targeted his estranged wife, who was a regular at the restaurant on Santiago Canyon Road. We believe he had two firearms in his possession. He then went directly to his wife, who was within the, uh, the business portion, the interior portion of Cook's Corner. Witnesses stated they do not believe there was any argument that ensued between him and his estranged wife, Marie Snowling. He drew a weapon 
He fired upon his, his wife, soon to be ex-wife, through divorce proceedings. Uh, she was struck once. The woman his wife was dining with ran outside the bar where she later died. Gunfire occurred and the suspect was shot by deputies and ultimately succumbed to his injuries. Barnes said after the shooting, deputies recovered four weapons Snowling had brought to the scene, two pistols, a revolver and a shotgun. John Snowling, 59, residing in Ohio but with a residence here in Southern California, uh, was the individual who shot and killed three people and injured six additional. Officials said Snowling took up residence in Ohio and has a second residence in the Camarillo area. Barnes identified one of the victims who was killed as John Leahy, 67, of Irvine. Two other deceased victims, one male and one female, have not been identified. A vigil is planned for the three victims who died. A community prayer gathering will take place tonight at the Worship Center located at 1 Saddleback Parkway in Lake Forest at 7 p.m. The gathering will be live streamed on the church's website at saddleback.com. Christina Corona, Entity News, Orange County. Coming up, a survivor of Mao's cultural revolution has a warning for Americans today. Find out what she says about communist influence. And the Department of Justice is suing Elon Musk's SpaceX for not hiring refugees from other countries. Musk says doing so may be illegal. We ask an attorney and speak with a former immigration judge. That and more after the break. Next, among the many voices sounding over the arrest of a former president, we hear a uniquely historical perspective. Shee Van Fleet lives in the U.S. She's an Education Freedom Ambassador with the Independent Women's Forum's Education Freedom Center. But earlier in her life, she lived through Chinese Communist leader Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. And today, she warns Americans of what she sees as history repeating. Xi, thanks so much for joining us. There's many perspectives on former President Trump's arrest, but you have a unique perspective. How did you respond initially? Well, my initial response is, this is communism. And I tweeted out, for people who have uh, still wondering what communism is, this is it. Why? It's in communism, there's no tolerance of any political opponents and descendants. And they only allow vo one voice. So any other voice has to be crushed. And that's what's happening here in America. What specific parallels do you see to today and compared with Mao's Cultural Revolution, which you lived yeah. through? Actually, Mao's Cultural Revolution was a perfect example. One of the major reasons for Mao to launch his uh, Cultural Revolution is to destroy his number one enemy, who was the president of China, Liu Shaoqi. And so in order to do that, he has to uh, mobilize the whole mass to go after him. And when actually, it's very interesting, when Liu found out Mao's intention, he pleaded with Mao. He said, just let me leave my post as the president of China and go back to my home village. I will just become a peasant. No, 
There's no way that Mao can let him go. In a communist system, your enemy has to be destroyed. And so for Americans who may not have much awareness of the Cultural Revolution in China, what would be your advice for them at this point in time? I have to tell them that Trump was right when he said they are after us. He was in the way. It happened time and again. The real enemy of a totalitarian regime is the people. They want to control the people, and then we uh, all become the problem for the regime. So they will go after all of us, silence all of us. So for the people who are cheering Trump's indictment, you will be the next, even though you think you're on the winning side for right now. Stark warning there. Xi Van Fleet, always great to hear your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Justice Department is suing SpaceX, accusing it of discriminating against refugees by not hiring them. Elon Musk says that legally he's not allowed to. NTD's Colin Fredrickson talks with a legal expert. The Biden administration is suing Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. The DOJ accuses the company of refusing to hire refugees, saying that amounts to discrimination. The government defines refugees as migrants who have fled persecution in their home countries. Those with refugee status are authorized to work in the U.S. Musk wrote on X, SpaceX was told repeatedly that hiring anyone who is not a permanent resident of the United States would violate international arms trafficking law, which would be a criminal offense. He added that this is yet another case of weaponization of the DOJ for political purposes, suggesting that he believes the case doesn't have merit. There certainly does seem to be merit. For years, there has been a little bit of uncertainty by a lot of companies, including SpaceX, on whether refugees or people who have asylum status but are not yet citizens or have green cards are eligible to work under these regulations. Attorney Gerard Felitti believes the DOJ is doing this partially to clarify what the law means. At the moment, it's not crystal clear whether SpaceX is allowed to hire refugees. So to play it safe, it hasn't. According to the Justice Department, they were too restrictive. According to Justice Department guidelines, you can also hire refugees or asylees without problem. But there's never really been case law that says this. Felitti believes the parties will come to a settlement SpaceX will pay a small fine, and the law will be clarified. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And here to discuss this case is Andrew Arthur, specialist in national security law, fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies, and a former immigration judge. We spoke earlier today. Andrew, welcome. To begin with, what's your take on this lawsuit against SpaceX and its implications? So this lawsuit actually balances two competing interests in the United States. One is the interest in individuals having fair shots at employment in the United States, but the other part of it is the national security of the United States. SpaceX has asserted that there are national security concerns involved in allowing people who aren't citizens or don't have green cards to work at their facilities, uh, and those seem like pretty significant uh, concerns. NASA is very strict around hiring only U.S. citizens on the whole. How do you think that compares to his position at this point? Well, it's a very uh, unfair position to put a private company into with respect to the United States government. Many United States government jobs particularly require clearance. 
an individual has to be a United States citizen. Certain uh, aliens, including green card holders, are banned from having those jobs. So it's interesting that for some reason the Department of Justice has decided to come out after SpaceX uh, in this particular case. I think that you know SpaceX actually does have a pretty good point. But it's concerned about its technology and concerned about that technology being shared illicitly with foreign governments, particularly ones that have interest adverse to the United States. So Musk himself says that he thinks the lawsuit is an act of weaponization of the government. What's your take on that and how do you think the suit will be perceived by the public? Well, well not an expert on uh, ITAR, but I am an expert on this particular provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act. DOJ actually does have a certain amount of latitude uh, in bringing cases like this. It is interesting that they've decided to bring it against SpaceX and against Elon Musk. Uh, and I trust that this is going to be a case that's going to go on for a long time. We're going to find out a whole lot about both sides' uh, positions and the reasons for bringing the suit. So how can companies like SpaceX uphold their commitment to meritocracy while also navigating the complexities of immigration laws and employment regulations, would you say? Well, fortunately, uh, many of my colleagues who are lawyers and practice immigration are more than willing to charge hundreds of dollars of that, uh, an hour to provide that sort of guidance uh, to their clients and especially well-heeled companies like this. Uh, but yeah, this does set a dangerous precedent, I think, for other companies that are concerned about national security, that are involved in the national security sphere when it comes to their hiring. We do know from a forensic study that was done a number of years back that um, of the cases that were determined by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to be fraudulent, 12 out of 29 of them had actually already been approved. So. This actually creates a way that foreign countries can send their nationals, their spies, if you were, to, the, to this country to infiltrate companies and to do some really serious harm to the national security. How do you anticipate that this lawsuit will play out and what could be the significance of that? Well, unfortunately, it looks like SpaceX isn't on very good ground. Uh, the Immigration and Nationality Act does protect citizens, green card holders, and asylees and refugees. Uh, as it relates to employment. So I think that uh, SpaceX is going to have a tough road to hoe. If they could show that there are provisions or serious concerns, it's a bona fide occupational qualification that they could use to say, we just can't hire these people, and that's why we haven't done it. All right, Andrew Author at the Center for Immigration Studies, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, a public speaker ejected from an event for implying transgender athletes who were born male aren't really female. We have her reaction. And it's just weeks away from the 2023 NTD International Classical Chinese Dance Competition. We hear from one of the judges to learn more about the ancient art form and what the competition is looking for after the break. Do biological men belong in women's sports? It's a touchy subject that even got one speaker kicked out of her own event. And Dave Martin has more. 
I was extremely shocked by what happened. Former NCAA soccer player Sophia Lori was a recent speaker at a public forum for quote, fair and safe sport for girls. Her talk didn't last long though as just a minute into her speech, she was asked to leave for implying that males who play in female sports are still males. The current 10-year-old girls cannot live out the same dream as long as men are allowed to compete in women's sports. So now, no matter how hard girls work, you can't do that. Soccer, my freshman year, why am I being asked to Now the speech took place at a public library in California for an event her organization, California Family Council, was a part of. Lori says the administrator who asked her to leave might have been referring to a state law which has protections for transgender people. But I don't think he realized that our First Amendment comes before those protections. We have the freedom to say what we believe. All I was saying is that males and females are different and no one should be silenced for speaking biological truth. Lori, who started playing soccer at the age of three, worries about the next generation of girls losing out in sports leagues that allow biological males who identify as females onto their teams because of the physical advantages men have over women. And that doesn't have to do with the fact that they train more or work harder. It has to do with the fact that we're biologically different. So when boys start playing on girls' teams, girls are going to get injured. Girls aren't going to have a starting spot on those teams. And there's a reason we have sex-segregated sports to start with. Now, Lori's views, which would include keeping biological males in men's sports, have been called anti-trans and even hateful, an assertion she pushes back against. This comes out of the fact that we want girls to be protected, whether if it's on their sports teams or in their bathrooms and locker rooms, that girls deserve to be protected. So that is not out of hatred for trans-identifying people. Lori, who says it's important that everyone's viewpoint is allowed to be heard, plans to keep on exercising her First Amendment rights. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. NTD's 10th International Classical Chinese Dance Competition is on the horizon. We had the chance to interview one of the judges of this prestigious event. Let's hear what she's looking for from participants. Zhang Mingwei is an expert and examiner of classical Chinese dance. What is required of a dance performer is that your body can speak through your art to express inner feelings. So that's a very high standard. She explains that to excel in this ancient art form, dancers should embrace the 5,000 years of Chinese culture and be able to tell stories of history and people. To perform well in classical Chinese dance, one must love Chinese culture and strive to enhance their understanding of it. Zhang says she's looking for more than just great technique. Although classical Chinese dance requires basic skills like leaps, flips, and other difficult tumbling techniques, it's nothing like gymnastics. We are not gymnastics, we're acrobatics. Dancing is created to portray characters. That is, only when a dancer is both highly cultivated and skillful can they achieve a balance of strength and gentleness in their performances. 2023, the 10th NTD. The NTD dance competition promotes authentic traditional dancing featuring pure goodness and beauty. 
Zhang says that dancers must improve themselves as a person before they can display beauty from the inside out. If a person's mind is righteous, then the things he chooses and the way he learns will also be righteous. Being a dancer is like self-cultivation. That means you have to let go of the negatives and highlight the positives so you can become better. Is finally over. Classical Chinese dance was widely introduced to the West by Shenyun Performing Arts. Artists from Shenyun will compete with participants from around the world at upcoming events. Participating in the competition is an opportunity to improve. But I think these dancers should be very experienced. So I'm looking forward to seeing them. This event is a very meaningful way to let the world and more people know about Chinese classical dance and Chinese culture. The competition is open to the public on September 9th and 10th at Purchase College in New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Before we go, I have an announcement. This is my last night as your evening news anchor. My dear friend and colleague, Tiffany Meyer, our wonderful host of China in Focus, will be taking over as anchor for NTD Evening News. I'm excited to announce that I'll be joining NTD's Chris Beers as co-host of NTD News Today in the coming months. I want to sincerely thank all of you at home for sharing your time and evening with me these past four years. It has been my great honor to bring you the news each night and to have been given your trust. I will forever cherish my time as your anchor and this great team that made it all possible. Thank you all. For now, I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night. <laughs>